Welcome to our second episode on season two of C-Squared, critical conversations that lie at the heart of health justice. This podcast is hosted by the Center of Excellence in Maternal and Child Health Education, Science, and Practice at the Boston University School of Public Health. My name is Emily O'Neill. Thanks for joining us. Today's conversation is with Dr. Aura Obando, a pediatrician and instructor at Harvard Medical School. She is the family team medical director for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, where she provides shelter-based medical care to families and unaccompanied youth who are experiencing homelessness in Boston. Join our conversation as we explore a variety of topics related to caring for individuals who are experiencing homelessness, including reducing barriers to care, substance use disorders, and systematic solutions for prevention. Hi, Dr. Obando. Thank you so much for joining us on C-Squared, Critical Conversations That Lie at the Heart of Health Justice. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. It's a real honor to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. So could you give us just a general overview of your academic and career background and what work you're currently doing? Yeah, so I am an internist and pediatrician or med peds uh, doctor who takes care of families and youth experiencing homelessness um, in shelter and clinical settings. In medical school, thought I was going to do global health and did a lot of international rotations, uh, gearing up for that. And um, over time and working with populations in Boston, developed more of an interest in working with underserved populations in the Boston area and did an elective with Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, which is where I now work, uh, and loved it so much that I applied for a job at graduation. And so I initially did a mix of adult homeless care, family homelessness, and youth homelessness, and now I'm really focused on family and youth exclusively. And so my day-to-day might look like being in a kind of more traditional clinic, seeing families and youth from across Boston, or it might be in a shelter-based clinic. Um, And one night a week, I also go out on a mobile outreach van doing sort of street outreach and mobile medical care for youth aged about 14 to 25. In our last episode, we started with defining what homelessness is, and we we carried that specific definition with us just to have that context. What would you say your definition of homelessness is? Is it not having a consistent residence, or would you say it's more complex than that? I think it's definitely a little bit more nuanced than that, because the the reason we do this sort of focused work is thinking about the health implications of not having a stable place to call your own Uh, And those health implications start even before actual homelessness uh, is experienced. They start during the phase of housing and stability or housing and security, as it's known um, in in different fields. And so we really kind of take care of a a group of folks experience a broad spectrum of, of that, of housing stability and homelessness. Even within the definition of homelessness, it's really not so much what my definition of it is, but the different federal institutional definitions of it. So the definition that most of the funding is allocated by is determined by the Department for Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. And it's a definition that skews toward capturing the experience of adult homelessness much better than it captures the experience of family and youth homelessness. So the numbers are much lower when we use the HUD definition than when we use other definitions of homelessness. There is a much broader definition of homelessness by the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, that captures data for students 
experiencing homelessness across the U.S. and the numbers are incredibly high, like in the millions compared to the, you know, several hundred thousand captured by HUD a year. So it's really, um, the HUD estimate is really an underestimate. I think everyone in the field really recognizes that. The issue is that funding is allocated by those numbers. And so it tends to maybe divert funding from youth and families who may have different ways of experiencing homelessness um, than adults. And so in families and youth, we might see people staying with each other more. So what's called doubled up or doubling up where people might couch surf or crash with families and friends until sort of those experiences are exhausted and then and then might find themselves with nowhere else to stay, in which case they would fall into the HUD definition. But Department of Ed and many of us advocates in this field consider that doubled up experience just as detrimental um, and problematic to health stability. So um, I would favor a broader definition that captures that as well. Absolutely. And it's frustrating when you're trying to navigate, like you said, like what those federal or state level definitions are, mostly because sometimes you're not reaching the people who really need to be reached and who need those resources. That can definitely be frustrating, I'm sure. Whether you're approaching it as a clinician or even even from like an advocacy level, it's super frustrating because trying to find a shelter for someone sometimes is even so difficult because they just don't have space. And if you don't meet certain criteria, you definitely won't be making it in. So that's definitely a really difficult situation to navigate. Moving more specifically to Boston, what can you tell us from your work at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless about the reality of homelessness in Boston? So who is disproportionately affected, where these individuals or communities congregate, or what might even surprise us? We are a very unique state in that we are the only right to shelter state for families. Uh, New York City is a right to shelter city, but there's no other state like this that has a law guaranteeing shelter placement to families that meet the criteria defined by the state. This means that we capture data better and maybe accommodate more families than they do across other states. So when we look at the numbers of homeless individuals across the country, about one third are in families. When we look at that number for Massachusetts, it's two thirds. So the big difference for our state is that when we think of you know, everyone has an image that sort of pops in when you're thinking of the word homeless, a homeless individual. And sometimes it might be a more visible homelessness, which is someone maybe panhandling on the street. Here in Massachusetts, that really should be a mom with a baby because that's who is most impacted in our state, or at least we're capturing data more for. That definitely introduces more factors into how we think of homelessness services and the needs for creating something that is more family-centered. Family shelters are a little bit of a, you know, hidden, less known phenomenon. They're, they tend to be big old institutions that are converted to shelters where each family will have one of the rooms of like this old hospital or old maternity home. Um, some of the big old Victorian homes um, are also converted to smaller family shelters where families will like share the kitchen or share the living space and playroom, but each family has their own room. And so in terms of being, you know, health providers or providers in general, sometimes being given that address doesn't trigger us to think like that's a homeless shelter and I should be thinking more about what that means. Um, and so so we tend to not necessarily identify these individuals very readily as homeless. The adult shelters, you have to leave at the, in the morning and come back for the lottery later in the day, but families don't have to do that same day-to-day access to shelter struggle. They, they have a little bit more stability but that also makes them a little bit more of a hidden population. 
Homelessness across the board impacts people of color disproportionately. And this is related to, you might have discussed this in the last episode too, but historical racist practices and designating certain areas and cities as like worthy of investment versus not and and making it hard for people of color to obtain mortgages and that impacting, you know, still generations later that that home security, that like home ownership equity wasn't passed down, down the generations. And so we still see people of color being more likely to be renters, which means that if something catastrophic happens, they're that one step closer to homelessness than white people. Um, And then also we see that same disparity in exiting shelter that people of color are disproportionately represented in the shelter setting. And that could be related to racist practices in, in the housing market or in the job market that make that path harder. So we see people of color impacted more and um, as I mentioned, families represented more. Yeah, I mean, that was actually one of my follow-up questions, you know, talking about Boston in relation to other cities across the United States. And it kind of sounds like if we have better data or resources, our reality, even though it might still be not ideal, it might even be somewhat better than other states or cities, you know, so that's that's a little upsetting too. But I also wanted to go back to something that you said about the profile of a homeless individual really being a mother and a child. What circumstances do you think drive these family units into homelessness? What would you say you've seen? You know, a myriad drivers of homelessness that impact sort of all age groups. I would say disproportionately, like what I see in the family world, lack of affordable housing, the cost of living, especially in the Boston area, has become so high. And the minimum wage has just not kept up to make that a feasible balance. And the t- cost of childcare has al- also escalated. And so I often see people being forced to make these impossible choices of I could keep working in these two jobs and barely make ends meet, or I enter the shelter system where at least I can like be home with my child and not have to worry about childcare because that's too expensive for me, even with my two jobs plus rent. And so there's these impossible choices people have to make that force them into, into shelter settings. So cost of living, lack of, you know, poverty in general, you know, minimum wage not being um, what it should be to match the cost of living. And then domestic violence is another huge driver of homelessness. So people flee seeking safer settings um, and that we see a lot in the family family world as well. There are other drivers. So sometimes we see health issues leading people into homelessness, whether it's mental health or substance use. Conversely, homelessness can also exacerbate those conditions. So that's sort of one of those like cyclical situations, unfortunately. But those are sort of the big reasons that I see families enter, enter the shelter system. So how would you say clinicians and care providers can reach women, mothers, and children who are experiencing homelessness The main way to even have those conversations is to start screening more, you know, deliberately for for homelessness. Some health settings have that sort of built into their, you know, check-in process where they screen for like smoking and safety. So it's happening for domestic violence. And so some places have it built into that same screening, housing, like task for housing and stability you know, built into that visit, which is really a great way to even start capturing the data. 
Another way to do is because sometimes people may not feel comfortable sharing that in that kind of setting is asking it in the clinical encounter. And the way I ask individuals is I ask, where are you staying? And that's sort of a you know, judgment-free way of asking, like, is it a shelter? Is it a campground? Is it on the street? They can tell me what they feel comfortable. The answer to that question might be like, I'm staying with a friend or I'm staying in my apartment. Um, and so it really is a broad way of asking. So I think capturing the data is the, the first step. The second thing is sort of thinking about how can I make this encounter with this individual like as impactful as possible, knowing that they have many competing stressors in, in their lives. And so in clinical settings, I think we're, we're especially in medical clinical settings, we're pretty traditional in our like inpatient, outpatient, ER visit, primary care. But I think that creates barriers for my patients. And I would love to see that be more fluid so that even if someone is at an urgent care visit for a cold and the person sees that they're experiencing homelessness and that they're way behind on their vaccines, that they could be offered maybe like the, you know, offer the child the opportunity to, to catch up on those vaccines because it, they're captive at that moment. And we know that they're going to have many barriers to reconnecting to their medical home um, because of their experience of homelessness. So the, the other piece is kind of knowing what the health issues are that are associated with homelessness so that you can sort of be attuned to them. Like I just mentioned, you know, immunization delays. But for the parents I work with, there is profound depression and mental health needs. And so being able to connect parents to those resources are going to truly be helpful in their path out of homelessness and preventing them from having another experience of homelessness down the road. So getting people stabilized for their health conditions is really important. And, and knowing what those are is important. So the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a policy statement in 2013 providing guidance to clinicians around caring for families and youth experiencing homelessness. And it's currently being revised, but it does a nice outline of sort of like, here are the key things you should know impact families and youth experiencing homelessness, and here's what you can do about it. And in terms of mental health, do you think integrating mental health care into urgent care centers or places where homeless individuals might try to seek care, do you think that would be a potential solution? Absolutely. I think that that is truly like a backbone of the service we offer too, is that we wouldn't be able to do our medical care without our behavioral health colleagues, um, because sometimes that's the more urgent need. Um, and it's hard to start managing your own chronic health conditions if you're too depressed to even be able to get up and take your medicines every day. So it really is collaborative and a partnership. Um, and, and being flexible about how those models of care are offered. So some of our behavioral health clinicians do their, their therapy and psychiatry out on street rounds, if that's where the individual is, like really breaking down those barriers and, and knowing that patients have barriers to coming to seek traditional services and thinking creatively about how to offer them. I think telehealth has been another really like you know, the pandemic sort of forced us to embrace it, but has been really critical in opening up access for those who have who are able to access a phone um, or Zoom. Uh, this has been really helpful to keep people connected who might, you know, not be able to make it into clinic every week. They could at least, you know, hop on the phone and that makes it a little bit more accessible. Uh, so I do I do think redesigning those models of care and keeping it really integrated and low barrier is critical. And unfortunately we we are at a 
crisis with access to mental health services. So I love the idea of having it in the urgent cares and ERs because that's that's a good touch point where people where people are. From a prevention standpoint, you've seen firsthand what the clinical implications of homelessness are. Are there any housing options or models or interventions that you find to be the most effective for patients? The the current the the most like effective model right now is something called housing first, um, which is this idea that you offer housing as the first step, along with a lot of kind of wraparound supportive services that sort of tackle all the other things. But that getting someone into stable housing is the critical first step to achieving stability in every other way. And those wraparound services could include like medical care, mental health you know, employment, literacy, like a lot of other kind of wraparound um, type supports, Um, but that getting someone off the street or out of the shelter into stable housing is the very critical first step. I would say prevention in general, though, really starts with having access to affordable and low-income housing, and we just don't have enough housing stock right now. And so that that really is from like a legislative budgeting perspective that it's that's that's on us um, to to advocate for policy change that allocates more funding, encourage, you know, gives incentives to new construction to allocate more units that are affordable so that families have, you know, increased access if they're losing their current housing to go somewhere else or to exit out of homelessness. So I think that I think it really comes down to housing as the main prevention. I think there's also a lot of we could talk for a while about different poverty prevention measures that are that are out there. Like this is definitely multi-sector and multi-generational that we're talking about in terms of preventing homelessness. There's something in pediatrics we talk about called the adverse childhood experiences, which are these detrimental exposures that children have that include things like maternal depression, exposure to violence, um, so domestic violence or, or being abused as a child, childhood homelessness. If you accumulate more and more of those lead you to have a higher risk of developing poor health and mental health outcomes down the road. So it can lead you to have a higher risk of having chronic disease like diabetes, um, heart disease, it can lead to having a higher risk of developing a substance use disorder yourself later on in life or mental health needs, but it also can increase your own risk of developing homelessness. So that's an example of like that intergenerational cycle of homelessness that I think is what motivates us really to do our work uh, day to day is that the work that we're doing now for our current families we're serving really are going to hopefully help break that cycle and, and prevent that child from then ending up in our clinic down the road again. So I think prevention is, you know, can cover many, many facets of the experience um, of that kind of spectrum of housing instability and and, um, homelessness. There's a great TED talk actually on ACEs, Mm -hmm. that intergenerational cycle that, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to break as well. It's not only in regard to health, but it's, it's also, in regard to so many different parts of someone's life and yeah. pulling someone out of that is really difficult. And I think it, it doesn't just start with intervening on behalf of one person's right. existence. It's really, it really requires a whole sort of uprooting of a lot of different systems. 
You and know. to your point earlier, I mean, and that's where having integrated mental health services is so critical because we can start addressing those ACEs and, you know, to those experiencing them, but then also work with the children to build resilience and prevent them from having those poor outcomes. Absolutely. And I think robust homeless shelters are obviously important for acute care and, and acute circumstances, but why would you say it's important to have those in place that are exclusive to women and or children? When it comes down to it, like a safe, secure place is just absolutely foundational to child well-being. And I think it's important to to have separate services for families that take into account children's needs and, and considerations for safety. Um, so the traditional shelter model of having someone apply for a lottery every day where they might not be guaranteed a bed and they have to leave early in the morning would be just absolutely disastrous for children lead to a lot more trauma than they already have incurred. Shelter settings that work with families can really develop expertise around the family unit as a whole and their needs. So they might be able to provide things, you know, other social drivers of health like diapers and stable access to food, which is another kind of critical element in thinking about like those ACEs and, and toxic stress that children might be exposed to when they're experiencing severe poverty. They might be able to start to make sure children are enrolled in school and like know the pathways that families need to take to do that. They can help connect families to daycare vouchers so that the parents can start working. And that's also, you know, another critical piece to an exit out of homelessness. So there's sort of very specialized services for families and considerations that, that really do need to be kind of concentrated in certain settings. I wanted to go back to what you were saying a little earlier about substance use disorders. So you're board certified in addiction medicine. I was just curious what inspired you to pursue this extra training. And was it something that you sort of started or did you come back to it as you started working with certain populations or you started seeing certain things in your practice? Yeah, it was actually very much the latter that I was seeing it in my practice. So in, in these shelter-based clinics, um, I offer a mix of primary care and urgent care. And often people come with a lot of complex needs, not all of which I am trained to, to work on. And so I refer out. And early in my, in my time with Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, I found myself needing to refer a lot for things that I was seeing frequently. And so that included certain things like, so like substance use disorder treatment, hep C treatment, gender affirming um, hormone treatment. I was seeing a lot of contraceptive needs that I wasn't trained in my residency to offer. And so I started realizing that I was referring out for a lot of things that I might be able to learn the skills to do on my own. Because sometimes, as I mentioned, my patients have barriers to accessing traditional care. I would send these referrals and my patients wouldn't make it either because the appointment was scheduled so far out and then the phone number changed in the interim and those reminders never made it to them or life became chaotic and, and it just fell off the radar. And so I realized the more I could offer in that setting, so make my clinic more of a one-stop shop, the better that would be for my patients. And so over the last few years of, of acquired these skills, and it's not just me, this is many of my colleagues have sort of learned the same thing along the way and our program has Fortunately, allowed us experiences to, to be able to, you know, certify or train in these kind of more traditionally thought of specialty areas. 
And so I was able to pursue my certificate in addiction medicine, which allowed me to treat families also with a history of substance use disorder right in my clinic. And it's it's one of the populations that I find most inspiring, and I, I really love working with them. I think there are families who have faced a lot of stigma in, in medical settings because of their history of substance use. And so it's really nice to be able to take care of the parent and the child all in one setting without that judgment, totally understanding, you know, what it is like in a treatment program for families or what it is like to have to go to a methadone clinic every day. Like the realities that these things pose that maybe other people who aren't as attuned to that would have as much understanding about. Yeah. And, and, you know, coming at it from caring for the family, in addition to caring for an individual, that can be really, I think, helpful for, for the family unit and sort of looking at it from. Yeah, no, that is, that is for sure. I think that's one thing I've really seen in my, my time here is that parent health is really inextricable from child health and vice versa. What I, what I often see is the parent's prioritize their children's health over their own. And so a lot of their own health conditions start lapsing. And so it's really special to be able to like dedicate some focus to the mom. Mostly I'm taking care of moms. So I'm saying mom, but really the parent uh, and make sure that, that they're caught up as well on what they need health-wise. So in terms of prevention, do you think that housing facilities and shelters that don't require individuals to prove sobriety in order to enter, which I think is within the last 10 years has been a a newer intervention program. Do you think that these are effective? Do you have any experience with individuals who have been through some of these facilities, et cetera? These policies impact more the the adult and youth population because the family shelter system is still very much like abstinence based. Um, But I do think that this makes it a lot lower barrier for people to have a safe place to stay. Um, I do appreciate shelters that are you know, we call them, so dry shelters are like absolutely no substance. There's wet shelters that are coming, whatever you've got on board. And then there's damp shelters that are like, if you, you know, are functional, but like a little bit inebriated, that's okay. And so I I do appreciate those lower barrier settings because it ensures more access points for patients to be able to seek other support. So it keeps them safe from all the exposures outside, whether it's temperature exposure or violence exposure. It allows people to come in and have contact with case managers that can work with them on housing. If they're at a setting where we have a shelter-based clinic, we can offer medical services and certainly can also make sure that they're safe in their substance use. So we sometimes monitor people while they're sedated to make sure that they're safe and not needing to go to the emergency room or if they need an administration of a reversal agent like Narcan that we're there to, to administer it. And so I think lowering that bar to ensure broader access to all of these services is beneficial. You're a training a pediatrician and just in general, what can you say about the implications of homelessness specifically for maternal and child health? And like, what do you think the biggest takeaways are that you've seen in your experience? So I think this goes back a little bit to what I was saying that this there's this multi-generational cycle and I really, it breaks me up a little bit inside when I open someone's chart that's a new patient, like a new parent I'm seeing and they were, you know, in our system as a child 20 years ago. I think that there really is this sort of cycle that we're trying to break that separating the child and maternal health or parental health is really not as 
helpful that as thinking of them as a dyad or a family unit and taking care of, you know, the mom's depression might be really related to the child's deteriorating health and stressors about how, how she's going to get to appointments. Sometimes clinics are very strict with being on time and how many missed appointments you've had. And sometimes I'll hear from a patient that they were fired from a practice for missing, you know, another appointment. When it turns out that that appointment coincided with their one ride that week to the grocery store. And so the parent had to make a choice of feeding their family for that week or going to this appointment. And so in that moment, that choice is obvious. And sometimes it takes a little bit of advocacy to the clinic to, to explain kind of what happened. But not everyone has that advocate. And so I think asking people to have a little bit of flexibility and giving people benefit of the doubt when they're, again, struggling to balance all of these competing needs and urgent needs is something important to think about when thinking about that family unit, that sometimes it's the child's health that impacts the mom's ability to make an appointment or vice versa and having some flexibility around that. Again, thinking about the importance of mental health access for, for both parent and child is critical in terms of helping people exit out of homelessness and stay stably housed. Because the worst thing we could see is someone gets housing and then whatever drew them into homelessness to begin with was never addressed. And then it's a, you know, this repeating cycle. I mean, this is sort of the crux of this whole conversation, but that housing is health. There, that That's an aphorism for a reason. And we do, we know that there is some very serious detrimental health consequences for children experiencing homelessness and for parents experiencing homelessness. And the more we can advocate for a patient or an individual on a one-to-one level is helpful, but also on a policy level. So like thinking about advocacy and, and expanding services, doing more toward the prevention, as we talked about earlier with advocating for increased affordable housing, um, that those are all critical, that this is not like a one, one thing you can fix in, in a clinical visit, but really very multi-layered. The last piece I'll just say about sort of takeaway points is how much we rely on a multidisciplinary approach. So I couldn't do this by myself without my behavioral health colleagues, without case managers that also help with a lot of the social drivers of health. Um, but also broader than that, like our legal colleagues and our housing colleagues who are working tirelessly to apply for housing for families or the, the shelter partners that are kind of seeing the day to day and, and can help us you know, clue us in a little bit to the to the needs of that family. So really that it's like a much larger team than just even our clinical team. Definitely. And I think when you're handling patients who, like you said earlier, are trying to make decisions between what they're going to prioritize for themselves and for their families, how do you handle or try to maintain continuity of care in these circumstances where patients might be difficult to access or difficult to contact afterwards? What are ways that you try to maintain that continuity of care? So there's a few ways we do that. That's a very common situation for us. So one is just kind of being a stable presence. So even if that patient moves out of their shelter and leaves, they know that we have a clinic there. And so they might, you know, lose my card, but know that they can call the shelter and get patched over to the clinic. So having sort of these like stable places that people know we're at is really helpful. And that might be in a shelter clinic or even on a street. Like we're always parked on Chauncey Street on Thursday nights. You can find us there, like that kind of stability. Um, we 
also encourage people to give us all forms of communication that they might have access to, whether it's email or a phone or the access through their chart. Our system is called MyChart, but basically access through the electronic medical record. Um, and then finally, just having really low barrier access to us so that if someone does disappear for two years, but then they come back to clinic, that we have the ability to have them do a walk-in visit that day um, is really helpful because not everyone can schedule in advance. And so having that mix of like a schedule and, um, you know, low barrier open access to, to walk in for an appointment. We recently, for our youth population, started doing another method of communicating with us or contacting us, which is over social media. So we just started um, a Instagram presence this past year where people can DM us and we'll bring our mobile van to wherever they are to, to get services. And so, of course, this assumes someone has access to, to a phone um, or Internet for that. But that's another method that young people told us they wanted to, to access us with. Yeah, it's always nice to hear about ways that people are innovating in terms of delivering care or accessing people. And so that's really interesting. And it's not something I would have even thought of, but that's that's super interesting. Can you just explain a little bit about how homelessness might impact reproductive and sexual health among women and, you know, what increases barriers to access? Yeah, this is a this is a a big question, I think. So, we have data that unintended pregnancy is much higher in, in people experiencing homelessness than in, in stably housed individuals. We think the reasons for that based on like surveys and studies that were done are multifactorial. One is poor access to healthcare. So that may mean people may not have insurance, like sometimes their insurance lapses, they might not have a clinic that they can easily access. Um, there is also some discomfort with offering uh, discomfort on the clinical side with offering long acting reversible contraceptives, which are the ones that at least rely on like, you know, daily or weekly or even monthly kind of remembering to take a medicine or use a medicine. Um, and so these long acting reversible contraceptives or LARCs are a little bit more specialized. And those are some of the things that I included in my like list of skills that I didn't have before. But now I do because I wanted to make sure we offered everything to our patients. Um, they are easier in that you don't have to they last many years. So you don't have to get refills or see a doctor um, and you don't have to remember to take them. And so. Not having access to those is another reason people have unintended pregnancy. Women on the street and in shelter are um, unfortunately easier targets for violence as well. So um, sexual assault and unintended pregnancy from that is unfortunately uh, an issue, a high issue for people that are, um, you know, unsheltered mostly, uh, especially those who using substances. It leaves them very you know, vulnerable. And unfortunately, they're exposed to a lot of violence. So these are these are kind of critical conversations we have with our patients. And we we try to screen for reproductive needs with every visit. We use um, something called the one key question, which is where you can you ask someone what their pregnancy intention is for the next year. And if they wish to not become pregnant or are ambivalent or do wish pregnancy, then that sort of sends you down different paths of counseling. And so if they do not want to become pregnant, we really try to offer low barrier access to um, reproductive health. Um, so we have some walk-in services and, and low barrier access to whatever method is right for that person and, and making sure that they have that. As an instructor of medicine, 
what, if anything, do you wish were taught more throughout the training of physicians that could be beneficial for treating individuals who are suffering from these larger structural and societal level issues? So that's such a good big question because there's so many things I think like, oh, I wish we'd learn that better. But I think the bigger thing is, um, so always having a trauma-informed approach to the way we interact with patients. And what that means is that we understand that a lot of folks have had extensive traumas in their lives that have shaped the way they react to things, to other stressors. And it really depersonalizes people's behavior from your experience as a clinician. And so people might be really angry. And I have to remember that that's a, a large response to whatever the situation is because of the things they experienced in their lives and not necessarily because of something that's happening right now with me. And so it makes it makes it easier for me not to escalate also like this is it helps me deescalate the situation to know that this is a trauma response. Um, and, and I don't think that's taught very much in medical settings and I think would be helpful in so many scenarios, not just with people experiencing homelessness, but as you said, all kinds of structural violence. The other piece is understanding that health is not an isolated fear of within a person, but informed by so many external factors. And, and so someone might be coming in for chest pain, but that might be because they, you know, got a prescription from someone who didn't translate the instructions for their aspirin into their language that they speak and they didn't know they were supposed to be taking it. Like there's so many layers to a patient's health outcome that are um, maybe language or their housing status or even the fact that they're on a very, very tight budget and have to make choices between medications because they can't afford them all. So sort of thinking of, of, health is just one of many factors that form the overall person's you know well-being because that I think opens up the medical field a little bit to to exploring those other social drivers of health in a way that I think would be really helpful to to people. So I can send like the best prescriptions for someone's acne, but if none of them are covered by their insurance, that, that doesn't serve them at all. They're not going to fill them. And so what are the things that are covered and how can I be creative around using other accessible treatments, for instance, like really thinking in a critical way about how to best care for that individual based on their context. And that includes their entire you know, socioeconomic language, immigrant status, like all of it, housing status, like thinking about all of that. And that's where, you know, you hope that public health sort of intersects with that a little bit where whether it's the administrative level in any sort of hospital or care setting, you have people who have a background in public health from that from the standpoint of social determinants of health or things like that. And it's such an interdisciplinary field. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Obando, it's been so wonderful to talk with you today. And our conversation has been incredibly informative. And, you know, it's been wonderful to learn from you and your experiences and your expertise. Before you go, I actually have a few fun rapid fire questions just to close out our interview. First one is, is there a TV show that you're binging right now? There is. So right now I'm watching Ted Lasso. I had watched it previously, but I'm rewatching it because the new se the new season is out. So I'm reminding myself what happened. But 
Um, I also sometimes at the end of the day just need to like be very mindless. Um, and so we'll also watch stuff like Love is Blind. Um, so I'm not like too snooty with my TV choices. If I need just something entertaining, I also will watch trashy reality TV. My other question is, if you could invite one celebrity to dinner next weekend, who would it be and why? I guess it varies by the week. Um, I recently listened to Kitchen Confidential, Confidential by Anthony Bourdain, and I was like completely enamored by the restaurant world and his travels and everything. And so I would love to have met him in person, but he passed away. Um, more contemporary or I guess alive currently. I mean, I'm a kind of a Michelle Obama fangirl. Like I would love to meet her and just, I, I was really inspired by by her autobiography and thinking about pivoting in your career and seeing some of that and, you know, some of the choices I've made as well and, and just really admire her. And then my final question is what song artist, or album do you have on repeat? Well, recently, um, I mean, not recently, I'll like fess up. This is kind of a very long-term love for Shakira, but more recently because she just released a single that's been, you know, out about her breakup with PK, the soccer player. So um, I've been listening to her a lot and definitely supporting her. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and we learned so much. That's the conclusion of our second episode for season two. Thank you for tuning in. Production of this podcast was supported by Grant GT76MC0001727701 from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the hosts and guests of this podcast episode and do not necessarily represent the official views of HRSA or HHS.